0: Life is not, life is not lived in cataclysmic moments. Life is lived in deciding, you know, who broke the French press, you know, like I, that's a bad example, but you know, like life, life is lived on the ground. Um, And mostly it doesn't make sense. And mostly it's messy and mostly it's mundane. And I think that to me at least, and, and I'm, and I, and I'm sure there are ladies on Goodreads who just think this means I'm very boring, but To me, at least I want to hold something of life inside of the things that I make. And I think that if I didn't constantly have people pulling me back into it, I would I would write whole books about who I imagine people
1: are instead of who they actually are. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Lynn Steger-Strong is a novelist and an essayist. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, The Guardian, The Paris Review. And her novels include Hold Still and most recently the book *Want*. Which is about a woman who's a writer, a teacher, a mother who's overeducated, overemployed, and underpaid. Um, a creative person who's a casualty of the gig economy and is struggling to keep her head above water financially while she investigates an old, troubled friendship. Lynn's also a friend, so this was a particularly fun talk for me. I was excited to ask her about falling in love, about being a writer who doesn't turn away from attachments and relationships, but sort of turns towards them and how that impacts her work. And with that, here's Lynn Steger-Strong. We're living in Florida, and
0: we're living a block away from where my husband and I lived when we met almost 15, 14 years ago. Um, and And also, I've been talking to students a lot lately about, like, tropes and how tropes are really valuable and interesting. And also tropes exist because they're true a lot of the time, Um, which is to say the thing I decided like an hour ago, I wanted to talk to you about, and I'm nervous about, but I trust that you will take care of me is, is one of the thresholds is, was, and like, and then also different versions of this since then was falling in love. um, And, and was like, I didn't believe in human interaction before I met my husband in any real way. Um, And I think that like as a writer, what I find myself constantly asking students to do, that's as a teacher, but they get mixed up for me. Um, as As a teacher and as a writer, what I'm constantly trying to do is like get back into the life, get back to the bodies, get back to the texture of the world that I'm trying to create and I feel like I'm actually quite bad at that as a human I would prefer to be in my head um so we I had lived in Asia for a while and I didn't have any money um (laughs) which is a common theme in my life um (laughs) I didn't have any money so I came back to this town where I grew up which is which is beautiful but but I hated it I hated it so much um Growing up, and I never thought I'd come back, and I came back, and it was really weird. And and my uh, one of my good friends from high school was like, "You should hang out with my brother. He's the only other person in this town that I like." And my friend, of course, wasn't here because he's a sane person. Um, anyway, so so he and it, and it became this almost joke among our friends that like I would meet my friend's brother, and he would entertain me while. I was here for as long as I had to be here. Um, and, and my friend's brother is my husband just to sort of give it away. Um, so, so anyway, so we went to this ridiculous concert and whatever. And the first night we met, I went over to his house and he had bookshelves and I didn't actually mean to tell this whole story, but he had bookshelves, um, which is if you've ever been to South Florida is in itself. Impressive. Um, <laughs> he had bookshelves, and on his bookshelves, he he'd actually taken this class in college on French women writers, which I figured, but was it was it was still impressive. He had he had Marguerite Duras and and Helene Cizou and and some other sort of French women writers that I love a lot. Um, and he had Franny and Zoe, which I know is sort of out of style. Um, but I, it's a book that, that meant a lot to me. Um, and I said, did you love this? And he said, I didn't finish it. And I said, sit down (laughs) and I made him listen. And I read him, um, Freddie and Zoe. Um, and then, you know, 14 years later, I didn't, I haven't left. Um, which is, which is also how he used to describe it when people were like, oh my God, you're dating Lynn Steger. Um, and he was like, well, we don't really date. She just comes to my house every day. Um, (laughs) But but anyways, the point the point, the point of this is, is that in these weird two years, then like I had to convince him to leave, which was harder than I thought it would be. And um, we had to figure out where to go and all of these things. In these two years, he taught me to really love this place. Um, and we did a bunch of stuff I'd never done here. We You know, we went surfing, which he surfed and I like sort of paddled crazily around on surfboards and fell a lot. Um, but I don't, I, I just, I, I learned this place is really beautiful and it's really extraordinary. And it, and it's very beautiful if you can be inside of your body when you're here. Um, and I think that when I grew up here, I wasn't very good at being inside of my body. Um, but in the time that we were here, I really, I learned that probably for the first time in my life. Um, and I think you know, having children was similar in terms of it was like a reminder to return to my body. And it was a reminder to return to all the ways it's gross and messy, but also all the ways it's powerful. Um, and and again, like as a writer, I think it's it's the thing that has proved most reliable to me is to just always return to my body, to get inside of the body, to, to sort of see the way bodies interact and move and live in the world. And yeah. And I think I, if I hadn't have done this thing that at the time, you know, I, <laughs> there was one night I tried to run away, like I, I got in my car and I was going to drive to Boston because like, I didn't like all of this sort of body stuff. Um, but Wait, what do you I, mean by I, I all I didn't, this body stuff? Like I, I, I wanted, I had never wanted another person, you know, and I, and I wanted him and it terrified. I had never wanted another person like that. Like, sure. I had wanted another person, but I had never like felt like I might need another person, you know? Um, mm. and, and that was super terrifying. And so I tried, I tried to leave partially because I thought I wanted to be a writer. And I thought that to be a writer, you had to have this certain level of freedom right? I think another reason I was thinking about this is because I was watching this video a couple days ago of Jenny Awful talking about the art monster idea. An art monster is generally male and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Nabokov and Vera licking his envelopes, right? It's, it's, it's the individual so deeply devoted to their work that in the footnotes, I, again, I watched this video, but, but the example that awful gave is in the footnotes you would read these biographies of these great men and then and then you'd get a footnote that said and and this wife who was the mother of child six and seven was also a scientist and then you'd move on with the biography of this great man right but but that like but then women get subsumed inside of life and then they can't make art anymore um and and women get subsumed by attachments and they can't make art anymore and so to be an art monster is to live free of all of those attachments and and I think I I have no doubt that's true for some people but for me and I'm not sure I would deign to say what I make art is art but I think for me what I make has only ever gotten better as I've gotten more attachments and I love Jenny Awful and I love the art monster idea but I also think like I had such an opposite experience in terms of like, I stability has always served my art more than it's hurt it. Um, And I and I don't think I would have had the language for it then. And I think that I thought then that, like, you know, I'm a writer, so I'm going to fuck around in Asia for a year and I'm a writer, so I'm never going to have a job and, you know, all of these things. But actually. I'm a writer and it's my job. So I have to get up and work every day and the less stable I am, the less productive I am and the less steady I am, the less productive and I am. And the sadder I am, the less productive I am. Um, and I think loving people, (laughs) again, my friend says I'm getting very tender in quarantine, which I think might be true, but like, I think (laughs) loving people has, has steadied me. Right. And I think like having commitments and connections and investments all of that has made me a better writer. And I think that that's the opposite of what I thought. So that's why I thought maybe it would be useful here because it's, you know, it was, it was a threshold, not even, not only in like my work, which I think obviously took a lot longer time. I continued to write very, very bad stuff for a very, very long time, but it was a threshold in terms of giving me enough stability to get to the place that I'm not sure I would have gotten to had I continued to flit about indefinitely, sort of thinking I was a writer but not living any kind of life.
1: You were saying earlier that like you were kind of skeptical of human contact in general (laughs) until you, Mm -hmm. until you're (laughs) what was it about him? I don't know. I don't know if I want to ask you why, which is like maybe, maybe too large a question. Maybe the better question is what made, what about him made you reconsider? (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't.
0: I have no, he wore, he had this pink polo Jordan, you know me. He had this pink polo shirt that he wore and he was in a fraternity. I have, I mean, something that felt deeply and fundamentally kind and human that I had never seen before and none of the rest of it made any sense. (laughs) Um, Because like he was not my type insofar as I had a type. He was very cool in high school, and that was that. That's generally not something you should think highly of. I already mentioned the fraternity. Um, it, it yeah, none of none of it makes sense except for something elemental that I can't totally explain. Um, was
1: was that there? Like, yeah, from the from jump, like the minute you saw yeah. his bookshelves, you were like, okay. <laughs> No, I'm curious.
0: Okay. See, this is, I was like, I should prepare. I'll tell it to you. So no. So I have a complicated relationship with my parents and we had gotten into an argument and I had left our house and I had gone to Starbucks. Um, And we had not, my husband and I had not like met officially. We sort of, he was four years older than me and we had some social overlap in high school. Um, but I walked into the Starbucks and he was pouring sugar into his coffee and I had been very upset and I had this shocking desire to ask him to hug me. So I had to go hide in the bathroom until he left because I got like very uncomfortable. Um, cause I don't, I don't know if I'd ever wanted to ask anyone to touch me like on purpose while oh. I was sober before. Um, And so I went and I hid in the bathroom and then um, and then he left and I went and got my coffee and went on with my day. Um, So, yeah, I don't I don't I don't again, I, I have no I have no answer for it, which is also why maybe it's interesting to me is because like another threshold that I was I was thinking of using was I once went to lunch with someone who was professionally important to me and she had said some upsetting things to me and and I looked at her and I said I have no answer and she was like that's your problem you always have an answer um and that haunts me still because she was right like I always want to have an answer um
1: but I but I'm not sure on this one it sounds like that's something that felt like familiar to you it was right you know like I
0: I mean I actually think like the the person who said it to me like the reason I loved our relationship was because she said things like that. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it wasn't wrong. So I love to have an answer.
1: Do you feel like that's um, there was something else that I was, I was going to take us in a different direction, I think, but I want to like linger on that. Do you feel like that? wanting to have an answer makes you more attracted to the places where you don't have one.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think again, I think that that's why going back into life and going back into human interaction is so productive and also sometimes hard for me as a writer is that you don't always have the answer and that people continually surprise you and life continually surprises you and sort of dailiness continually surprises you. And I think as long as you stay in the abstract and in your head, if you're a person who likes to think and likes to read, you can, you can stay really safe. You can sort of say, Oh yes. I, I, you know, even if you don't have the answer, you can go find it. Right. Whereas like, what is this person I love going to say when I do this thing accidentally or not accidentally, or what is this person I love? How am I going to love them in a way to keep them safe or, Keep them not scared, like all of that is uncertainty. Um, and so I think that this is all connected in terms of like I think that we have to you have to enter spaces of discomfort and uncertainty to make things that are valuable. Um and I think there's just the minute you enter life, there's so much of it. And and the minute you stay inside of books or your head, you can avoid it.
1: It's interesting, it sort of sounds like in this construction your relationship with your husband was this portal through which you entered life, which then sent you kind of back into a different relationship with your writing and to, to where you could actually, where you were making books.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a good, that's a good construction. Again, there's, I was 22 when we met, I was, I think 30 when I published my first book Um, so, so it was, it was a beginning, right? Like, I think, I think, I think maybe I moved from talking a lot about being a writer and a lot of really messy, awful paragraphs with no grammar to like more grammar by 23 and like (laughs) five pages by 24. You know I mean? It was, it was a gradual, it was a gradual process. Although interestingly, I finished my first book on my phone while I was nursing our baby. Um, which who maybe was my second portal. I don't know. She's also a human with agency and autonomy um, who I <laughs> like very much. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe th- there's something there. I mean, I, I do think at every moment in my life, when the attachments have grown my willingness to double down on the things I want to make has accompanied them. I get up really early to work and I'd, getting up, I'd gotten up early. I can't use words. I'd gotten up, Early to work and things were going well. And then my attachments, my humans all woke up and they were talking. They were talking so much. And I wanted them to stop talking. And so I went running. And then I came back and then I started working again. And the thing that I'm working on is about attachments because I think maybe everything I work on is about attachments. And it was this strange thing of like, I'm trying to write this book about community and family and joy. And my six-year-old was trying to tell me a story. And I was like, honey, you have to stop talking, which is, which is to say that like, in addition to the investment in the attachments is the tension and the ambivalence that comes along with it, which I think is also a really fruitful space to live inside of when you're working. Right. Like, I think that if I didn't have to navigate that space, which is, not only like a, a a difficult space to navigate but like a very high stake space to navigate right because like it is very important to me that i be a good mother it is just about as important to me that i be a good writer and those things are regularly in direct conflict with one another <laughs> and now to use a very canned phrase now more than ever Right. So it's, it's also, again, to, to what is fruitful to me as a writer, it's, it is the, it is the biggest tension in my life. And so I think that I enter that tension and I think tensions can be useful to make things. So I enter that tension and I try to navigate it and make sense of it. And sometimes I just put shoes on and run away from it, (laughs) Um, which is why maybe I write about running a lot and also why
1: I run a lot. Did that feel? I like I am at the way that you're you're framing that in its current construction mm-hmm. has a lot to do with not just being a partner but being a mother. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if that tension was there from the from the moment that you decided that your husband was somebody that you were willing to be attached to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it was. It was. It was. It's funny cuz he he traveled. I maybe this is maybe this is the why Jordan. He he was a sailing coach when we met which means that he traveled a lot and all over the world. Um and so it was this very ideal I think entry point into human attachment in so far as like <laughs> I still got I still got weeks and sometimes months a lot at of time. A long time. Yeah, where he where he left. And so I think that that was it was really interesting and useful. It was also really interesting and useful back to this idea of like ambivalence or tension, because I would be like, Oh, I'm gonna get so much work done and I'm gonna have the space and I'm gonna think in these new ways and I'm gonna read all these books. And then like I would be cranky on the couch with reality TV and baked goods for like most of the time, you know? Um which is also an important part of my process. Um, but <laughs> but but yeah, I mean I think I think it was it was always attention because I want to be in my head when I want to be in my head and your people in your life don't want you to be in your head when you want to be in your head. Um, and I had never cared. (laughs) Like I had, you know, I had never, I had never had anybody that I cared so much about that I felt guilty for just leaving the dinner table with a book on my lap. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I think that that was a tension. Like you say, it becomes it becomes a different tension with children. And there's there's that great gift of so much more guilt with children. Um, But I think it's there in all of my attachments and all of my relationships that I want to be as invested in them as I am in my work. And sometimes that feels shamefully hard.
1: That... um... It's reminding me of something. I read it somewhere or it was like on television somewhere. I'm trying to remember where I where I have this like phrase in my head, which is that like we like to think of the Shakespeare as like this fascinating person, but like Shakespeare was a man with his back turned to you writing. <laughs> you talked earlier about like the art monster mm-hmm. and who we imagine the artist to be and that like genius and great work requires like solitude and a lack of encumberment Mm -hmm. and what you're talking about is the way that encumberment or attachment or entanglement whatever meant you want to use can be can be this really grounding gift to creative process while it is also really frustrating like I relate even though I don't have children I relate to that feeling of like oh I want to be like alone in my with my thoughts and my notebook. And then often when I am alone, I'm like pretty bored and cranky. I'm like not the person I imagine I'll be when I'm off in my whatever imagined writing solitude. Um and having to like negotiate not just my relationships, but the way that my relationships ask me to reconcile the gap between who I am and who I imagine myself to be when I imagine I might want to be an artist. Um is, is a big tension and like a big, interesting, fruitful space of tension, um, like relationally and creatively.
0: Yeah. Well, even that thing you just said, like who I am and who I imagine myself to be, I think there are ways that there are lives that can be constructed. I do not have access to them, but there are lives that can be constructed where you can function almost solely as who you imagine yourself to be. And I think sometimes I read books and I'm sort of like, no, this character is who I mean, I'm using your language, but but and I maybe think it differently, but this character is who someone imagines a life to be like, but it's not what a life is like. Um and I think too, that's where the encumberments are so useful is to say, no, that's not what like life is not life is not lived in cataclysmic moments. Life is lived in deciding, you know who broke the French press. you know, like I that's a bad example. but you know, like life life is lived on the ground. Um, and mostly it doesn't make sense and mostly it's messy and mostly it's mundane. And I think that to me at least, and and I'm, and I, and I'm sure there are ladies on Goodreads who just think this means I'm very boring, but, but to me, at least I want to hold something of life inside of the things that I make. And I think that if I didn't constantly have people pulling me back into it, I would, I would write whole books about who I imagine people are instead of who they actually are.
1: Yeah, I've like I feel like that's something I really loved about Want was how much Who Broke the French press was a part of that book. And actually how much the, the way that, that book managed to I think to me it felt like correctly dramatized the stakes of life lived on the ground, of like who's where did the where did the five-year-old shoe go? And, like, how am I going to deal with my subway commute? And I don't really totally know how to talk to the person who I have to sit next to at one of my day jobs. Um, and I guess my curiosity is like what whether that was always there in your writing or if it got if it got there because it was a curiosity that came along with attachments.
0: I think, I mean, I think to some extent, and again, this is, I like your framing of who I imagine and who I am, but I think to some extent, a certain, a certain feeling of hypersensitivity, a certain feeling that like, we need to talk about how intense it can feel. To go to the coffee shop and have someone bump into you and to smell them and to see their shoes and their shoes look sad and then to feel sad about it and then to sort of have to go on with your day and not think about it, but also you feel less human for not thinking about it. And how do you live your life in the face of humans and the fact that humans are complicated and devastating on a daily basis? Like, I think that's always sort of been my project. I mean, that thing I just described was like a very bad scene in a story I wrote when I was like 24. Um, and also, totally, just a thing that happened to me um, when I lived in New York when I was very, very young. Um, but I think, I think, and this is where this is actually the opposite. This is actually not life. I think this is the part that's craft. Is for a long time trying to do that. It was just bad, and it was just super shapeless. And so I think, like being a grown up and recognizing this is my job, and I think this is connected to encumbrance too. Is that like I do really think of writing as my my job, you know, like if I'm gonna take time away from my kids, if I'm gonna tell my six-year-old she can't tell me that story about the unicorn until I'm done working, like I better write some good shit or I should just listen to the about the unicorn, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, I I have thought a lot about okay, how do I shape these things? How do I communicate these things in a way that other people feel them in the proper way? And I think, you know, a thing that I say to students a lot as they're trying to give shape to their novels is every book has an explosion, right? And some books, the explosion is an actual explosion. And some books, the explosion is somebody being rude to you at the coffee shop. The trick is, is teaching your reader the terms such that when that explosion happens, they feel it at the exact tenor that the characters in the book feel it, right? Because the other side of that is that like, we hear about explosions all the time. We don't feel them with the weight and impact that we want people to feel things in books that's the, that's why we write books and not just news articles right so so i think that idea of contextualizing the explosion and also teaching the reader the terms and the logic of the experience of the characters that is a thing that i think i've i've spent most of my <laughs> life as a writer thinking about, right, is is how do you do that such that when that thing happens, the, char- the reader understands it was violent or it was devastating on the same terms that the character does. Um, even though to that person living in the world outside of the book, they might have just been like, oh, there's a man behind me at the coffee shop. Okay. You know? Um,
1: yeah. Totally. I, what you're talking about is like what you're describing is something that I think about all the time though obviously in a different context because I don't write fiction but it's you're talking about like dev- imagining and like developing an emotional relationship with a reader even mm-hmm. if it's not a particular reader even if you can't control the the emotions of the particular reader but something it feels like what you're describing is approaching a reader with like um with a certain kind of tenderness, not to use a word that you mentioned, like you're getting more tender in in quarantine. But, and that's it, that like rang in my ear because I have a, a note on my desk that just says the word tenderness. Like I just wrote like the word tenderness and like on a sheet of notebook paper and cut it out because it feels like the best thing that I can do is to try to approach, not just like the real people I write about, When I'm writing about real people, um, but also the the reader themselves with like that kind of care so that they are with me and they will trust me so that when I want them to feel like an explosion is happening, they're ready to do that. Which is like a very relational, it's like a very relational way of writing that you're describing. It's like, it's quite attached.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's, and again, I think it's all, you know, it's all mixed up, but yeah, I think, I think it's another thing that does feel, it feels connected with the real privilege of loving people, which is that, you know, again, I'm so, I'm so canned, but I think this, people say this stuff because it's true. Like it's, it's so much more thrilling to, to give to the people that you love than to get from the people that you love. And on the same way, like if the only reason you're making things is to get recognition you're fucked right because okay sure like it's smoke and mirrors right but if but if if you're making things and thinking really hard about the fact and this is sort of this is i almost don't want to talk about it cuz this is this the book that i'm working on and i worry i'm too obsessed with it but but this idea that like art is an offering right is is all i want to think about right now and all i want to think about is that like so much is broken but somehow human connection still exists and art is capable of creating human connection and i need to get hope from that and maybe even joy from that um but the only reason i think it's still worth it to get up at four o'clock in the morning these days is to think of it as something i could offer to other people if i thought that it was something that i could write to get something for myself i would have quit years ago um, and I think again, that's attached that's connected to the attachment thing, right? Like that's connected to I know the thrill and privilege of giving to other people in my daily life, and the idea that I might make something that, as now we've both said, could feel tender. It's not medicine. It's not saving the world, but it feels valuable um, and certainly valuable enough to keep
1: trying. Do you think explicitly about what you want your writing to offer people? Like, do you think about what you want your offering to be or to do beyond um, the content of, of the books themselves or the essays themselves? I think I always have a, f- a,
0: f- a feeling, you know, like I think with want, I had this idea that <laughs> you're a little sweaty, you're maybe a little drunk, at a bar you're close to your house and a woman that you know sort of well but not that well starts to tell you things that make you both a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit thrilled you know like I think I think there was like that was the thing I I I wanted someone to read a book that felt like that you know (laughs) like because I think you you're always like to me that's what you're doing is it's an experience and if you again like to the point of like I love reading I don't want people to read my book and feel smart. I want to feel people to read my book and want to swim around in it, you know. Um, and and that was the feeling I wanted for that book, you know. And I think I think with this new book, it is it is this. I gave myself this ridiculous task at the beginning of this time, which is I think that I should always write the things that feel hardest. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to write a book about joy. I'm gonna write a book that when it lands, it's gonna feel like joy. And some dude in some review somewhere is gonna call me like dumb and silly for writing this book. And I'm gonna be like, no, dude, that was exactly the point. You know, <laughs> like, like I, I, I wanted, and then also it felt it felt that felt again, it felt. I wanted to come to it in a way that I believed it right like back to this idea of like the explosion like I wanted the explosion to be and maybe even the surprise to be that like a mix the mess of what you have to go through and all the pages before that like we can still land in a space that feels maybe even thrilling um yeah, I mean I don't know. I think I think that's always how I write books. Is like what is what is the what is the feeling I want readers to swim around in for a couple hundred pages.
1: Okay, so we we started by talking about you meeting your husband spending this year, these two years back in your hometown. Mm-hmm. And now you're back in your hometown again with <laughs> yeah. your husband mm-hmm. in this like place that's really beautiful if you can be in your body. And mm-hmm. what's it like? Yeah, it's, I still don't know. I mean,
0: it's very, str- I mean, first of all, the, the, the quarantine is is sort of an ideal way to do South Florida because it's such a beautiful place. And there are a handful of people here, not least my husband's parents, who are really important to us, who we love a lot. And, and to the point of being in your body, like there's just something so elemental, I think to both of our bodies about salt and sun and sand and to watch my kids experience that is, it's extraordinary. A few hours ago we were in the ocean with my girls and I, and my husband was out surfing and you know, I don't know. It it feels magic. It really, it feels, it feels magic. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a ridiculous, difficult time. They're isolated and cranky and homeschooled and we're all restless and exhausted. But the other day we went, it was a full moon. So we went out with my husband's parents and, um, waited for the moon to come up over the ocean. Um, and that felt like a gift. You know, um, it, it's, it's a really hard place when you have to interact with people. It's a really hard place. Like, I, I, I don't know if I would be able to send my kids to school around here. It's, it's very conservative. There's, there are a lot of Trump flags and Trump posters and it's very wealthy. And also there's a lot of natural beauty. And then there's a lot of natural beauty that's been destroyed. Um, so it's a really complicated place, um, but in the way our lives have really been pared down right now, it's interesting to be back and basically only be engaging with the parts that are my favorite parts. Um, although you like can't go to the gas station because no one's wearing a mask, and you can't go to the playground because no one's wearing a mask. Um so we are, we are also, which, which to be honest, is a thing I felt well before COVID whenever we came here. Like it is, it's, it feels really isolating. Um, but since isolation is a given right now, um, the the other parts are, are nice.
1: Something I would just have like personally really been wanting to ask you is about mm-hmm. your relationship to anger in writing, because mm-hmm. sometimes, because like you in your newsletter and it's in your essays And like earlier, before we started recording, like you were like, oh, this world is so fucked, you know, or like you'll express what, what to me reads as, as like correct and, and, and true anger.
0: You know, I, I wrote, I think it was, it was years ago. It was like three or four years ago. I wrote this essay about anger it was it was like why this essay is not about anger or something um and and then I and I was writing all of this stuff about anger and it was around the time that I was writing want and I remember I I finished want and I was was away for work and I was reading about art I was reading a lot about visual art and I came back to New York and I was working and I was like, okay, I just don't want to write about anger. I'm going to write about visual art. And so I wrote (laughs) this piece about these, this book I'd been reading called nine street women and and these female artists. And I had gone to look for their work and I couldn't find their work. And, and I, I sent the piece to my editor and we were going back and forth. And then finally she finished it and she sent me a note when, when it was about to go up and she was like, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the anger And I was like, Oh shit, (laughs) I'm still angry. Like I was like, I just, which is to say that like, I am angry. First of all, like I'm deeply angry at this country, at the systems, not just in this country, but, but in this world that continually destroy people's lives for no good reason. Then they think that other lives are more valuable also for no good reason. Like I am deeply and regularly angry, but I don't think, I can live my life that just inside of that. And I also like syntactically don't want to live just inside of that. So I think that I'm not afraid my anger is going anywhere. And I'm also maybe even a little bit afraid my anger will always be in my work. And and I think it'll be always in my work in some way, not least back to the attachments idea. Like I, I, (laughs) to the detriment probably of my day-to-day existence, I probably sort of I feel things a lot, right? (laughs) Like, I don't know, like, I, you know, I'm sort of intense and if you're sort of intense, you you know, and you live in the world, it's hard not to be angry. Um, But I do think back to syntax, like I, I do think I've been thinking a lot about the fact that we hit, we get inside of modes as writers and we get almost addicted to those modes. And I think especially I'm very compulsive and I'm very much like everything to me is rhythms. Like, copy editors and editors and I sometimes have a very hard time um, because I, I need my rhythms a certain way. And, and I think my rhythms were really angry too. Um, and my rhythms in my life, probably like my go-to was probably anger. Um, so, so it, it's something I think about, it's something I feel, but I also think like, I want to be a writer who can encapsulate a lot of life. And I don't think all of life is anger. And I think even when very terrible things are happening, like I just describe to you a story of holding my babies who are not babies in the ocean and 3,000 people died today, right? And those two things live in the same space. Um, And I know those 3,000 people died and then I come home and I think about, okay, so how do I, where do I put that and what do I do with that? But also I need to put that half an hour in the ocean somewhere too, or it will also disappear.
1: Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.